0: Shabbat Shalom, and welcome to United Israel World Union. This is our Sabbath morning scripture study coming to you live from St. Francisville, Louisiana. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Uh, You'll notice behind me that I have a couple of maps. I want your focus to be uh, when I direct you to the map immediately that I'm pointing to, I uploaded a replica of, or a copy of this map, similar map, to our Facebook group page. I know some of you don't use Facebook, so I thought about it last night as I prepared the class uh, notes, as I finalized my notes, and I said, you know, I think I need to have that map up. So, hopefully, as I point... You'll notice, I'm not gonna identify these locations yet, but hopefully my pointer is sufficient for the screen. You'll notice that I have red arrows in several locations and a yellow arrow here at the bottom. I'll be identifying these places as I work through, and I want you to think about direction. We're gonna be talking about a story. We're gonna be working in the text today. We're following our natural order of classes. But I want you to get into the story. I want you to follow Jacob. That's what we're gonna do today. So I did mention to John and Lyndon earlier, and some of you can help me. uh, Sometime back I said, you know, it would really be nice if we could find those big maps You know, the kind, some of you who are maybe my age or older in school or classrooms or Sunday school classes or whatever, big Bible maps that are on a spool. There are several of them. You pull it down. I want something big behind me. Now, there are technological things we can do to put maps on the screen, but I just love these kind of maps, and I think that they're quite instructive. So hopefully... The map will be of assistance to us today as we work through some of these ge- geographical points in the story today. Now, I also am excited to announce a project. Now, there is a more, formal, pro- uh, more formal, formal project announcement coming, but I wanted to let you know that I have come to this idea. I'm gonna announce it uh, just briefly. I have a lot of ideas in my mind about things that I wanna study and research and write, but nothing interests me as much as the Bible. And so for the last couple of weeks, as I work more and more on the text of the Pentateuch, as I'm working on these classes, and it does take quite a bit of research to pull these classes together, as you might know, um, I decided what I really need What you really need, what we really need, what the world really needs is a very good study Bible. And so I thought about it and I said, you know, why don't I begin work on the Pentateuch and take Genesis and put a text, say, um, I I thought about the King James, but I also thought about the ASV, the American Standard Version. It's a time-honored formal translation Uh, It uses a form of the name instead of Lord. It uses Jehovah. It's it's a public domain, so I can use it. My work then becomes a lot more, um, I think, easy in the sense that I don't have to deal with the translation immediately. So I thought about taking, and I already started this, by the way, taking the text of the ASV for Genesis, putting it into a document, and then beginning to go verse by verse Just like as I teach, this word is used this many times, see this, 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 and this. And so the work has begun on a Pentateuch project from Horeb Press. Now, I'm not gonna announce a date of publication because I don't know yet, but I've worked and talked with the chief officers of United Israel World Union. They're fully supportive and behind this project And I said, you know, aside from other ministerial duties, I could focus on this tens of hours every week. So the goal would be to produce Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they would be serially published, one right after the next. And then we would have a, once the whole thing is done, I could release the Pentateuch with uh, notes and commentary. So that's what the plan is and I'll be informing you in a more formal way and describing the project in a lot more detail over the next few weeks. So keep that in prayer, and if you want to get behind that and you want to see that come to fruition, uh, stay tuned because it is coming and I'm very, very excited about it. So that's a a Pentateuch project, and uh, again, releasing one at a time and then all together. Now, We are today in the Patriarchal Narratives. We are currently in class nine of our series, The Pentateuch, A New Look. And we're in a book within the book, a story within the story called These are the Bringings Forth of Isaac, or Eile Toledot Isaac. It began, if you recall, back in Genesis chapter 25, 19, where the focus shifts to two boys that are born through Rebecca. Remember, we have she is pregnant. Uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, or his woman, Rebecca, is pregnant with twins. And uh, so this story, Eli Toledot Isaac, began two weeks ago with uh, the Pentateuch reading that's known as Toledot. Now, I'm going to be talking to you this morning. We're going to start in Hosea chapter 12. So if you'll go with me to Hosea, Hosea chapter 12, and I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about a prophetic picture uh, or the way that the prophet remembers the stories that we're covering now. So in Hosea chapter 12, if you look, now the verses are different in the Hebrew and the uh, English, but in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 3, you'll see immediately that we're talking about Jacob here. It's uh, verse 4 in Hebrew, 3 in English. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Now, the two boys, according to Genesis chapter 25, you remember, Rebekah goes to seek Jehovah, over the boys that are battling in the womb. And she's told through a divine oracle, God tells her that there are two nations, two peoples, and they're fighting in the womb. Well, these two boys, Jacob and Esau, fought not only in the womb, but they strove against one another in life. They fought in life and enmity and jealousy ultimately drove them apart. You recall the story Uh, Jacob is warned by his mother that Esau is going to kill him because of his anger over the birthright and the blessing episode that we read about. And so he flees at his mother's advice, his mother's plan, to a place called Aram Naharaim, to a place that patriarchs and matriarchs are from. Uh, the home of his ancestors, and he's there for one reason. Well, he's there for two reasons. He's one there for safety, uh, for his life, and the other is for a wife. His mother sends him there to get a woman, and it's there that he meets his match, Uncle Laban. Now, by the way, on the way, on the way, he encounters Hebrew says malakim, sometimes it's translated angels. You remember the story of the sulam, the ladder which reached from the ground to heaven and so forth. While he's away, while he's away, lessons are learned. We get the impression the uh, writer, the author wants us to know that Jacob is learning valuable lessons. I covered those in previous classes. After he's been there a little bit more than 20 years, he flees again, and this time he's with women and children. That also is covered in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 13. Remember, I talked about that last week. Uh, The English generally is understood to mean that he fled to Aram, and there he served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But as I pointed out last week, the preposition to is not in there. It's not talking about his flight to Aram in Hosea 12, 13, but his flight from Aram with a woman and with a woman. And that was indicated, and I proved that to you by the next verse, which deals with, uh, shows forth evidence of Hebrew parallelism, where Israel fled from Egypt. All right, so Hosea 12 is picking up on this idea of Jacob. Jacob becomes sort of an underlying uh, key, if you will, to understanding Hosea chapter 12. Now, um, one of the things that I want to look at now this morning is go back to Hosea chapter 12 and verse 3, and let's pick up there again. And by the way, um, I see just, I happen to notice Becky, uh, uh, Betty Given points out Hosea 12 as part of this week's Haftorah. Well, the reason is because this is clearly a reference in Hosea 12 to the Torah portion that we're looking at. So Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, verse 4 in the Hebrew, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. This is, uh, uh, this translation says, And in his manhood, he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Now, I want to unpack that for just a moment. <clears throat> in his strength, In his strength, he strove with Elohim. What does that mean? Sounds like we have a a confrontation between Jacob and God. It says, and he strove with a malach, sometimes translated angel or a messenger, and he prevailed or he was able So what we get is this idea that Jacob fought with God, he fought with an angel, and he was successful. Now, he wept and sought his favor Bethel, he found him, and there he spoke with us. Now, some translations there say, and there he spoke with him. Well, it's because if you read it contextually, the translator, the old saying is that the translator is a traitor. The translator looks at this and he says, spoke with us. That doesn't mean him. It means us. The so question that I begin today's class with is, is there something about the story of Jacob, especially encounters at a place called Bethel that have to do with us meaning later generations is something that was spoken there meant to communicate down through the ages now the question that sort of is in the background here is with whom does jacob struggle who is this that jacob is fighting now if you look at hosea 12 it continues He found him at Bethel. There he spoke with us. Even Jehovah, the God of hosts, Jehovah is in memorial name. Is Jacob fighting God? Who is this that he engages in a struggle? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Is it an angel? Is it the malach? Jehovah of hosts, this is one of the strangest encounters ever. Today, we join Jacob and his family as they prepare to meet Esau. Remember, when he leaves, he's fleeing for his life. Esau wants to mourn his father. And by the way, even now, his father is still alive, as we'll see. But Jacob flees for his life. He now has been told, go back to the land. And one of the things that's taking his mind and has him worried is the fact that he now has to meet once again with his brother. And as far as he knows, his brother may still want to kill him. He doesn't know. So he's apprehensive. On the one hand, he's been told by God to go home. And on the other, he has to face Esau. Now go with me. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. And I'll be using the map today uh, quite a bit, so be ready. Um, And Jacob, verse 3 in the English, verse 4 in the Hebrew, and Jacob sent messengers. Now, remember, Jacob keeps encountering these messengers. Now, are the messengers that Jacob sent, are they messengers like people messengers or are they angels? It's kind of hard to tell because sometimes when we see Malach, we think of an angelic uh, being. At other times, we think of someone purely human and uh, you have to pay real close attention. But It says, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir. The field of Edom. And he commanded, uh, he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you say unto my Lord Esau, Thus saith your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Uh, and I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and maid servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in thy sight. So he sends these messengers unto Seir, the field of Edom. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that Jacob and the family are here. Can you see on my map? They're at the place called, sometimes some translations call it the river Yavok or Jabbok. In English, uh, it is here on the Transjordan. Remember, here's the Jordan River uh, Here. And this is the wadi. I would call it a wadi. In the desert, you don't necessarily have rivers, but you have wadis, which are dry riverbeds that given the right uh, situation can be flooded rivers. The water cuts through. So this is, let's call this the wadi yavok. Uh, And you'll see as we work through, but this is where he is, but he sends messengers to a place that in the Hebrew or in the Bible here says the land of Seir. Now, my map, this is, look on your map, you'll see it more clearly. I have a yellow arrow pointing south because Seir and Edom is below or south of the Dead Sea. This is where it's generally considered the land of Edom and Seir. And geography becomes more and more important to us because as we progress, particularly when we get into the, the wilderness itineraries and where are the tribes at, I want you to understand, we're gonna let the text tell us where these places are. And by the way, maps are made by people. A lot of these great maps were made a long time ago. The best maps begin to be uh, put together in the 19th century by the Palestine Exploration Fund and some of these guys. So, but the way they determine locations is they read their Bible like you're doing, like I'm doing. And they say, oh, wait a minute, that's where that is, the context tells me. And quite often we can prove those places, those locations through other means, archeology span and so forth. But Edom in the land of Seir, it's not a point on the map, it's an area, it's a region. Edom and Seir, this region, Edom, extends on both sides of this rift in which the uh, Jordan River is, but south here in the Arava, in the plains, all right? So he sends messengers to this particular place. Now, the English says, the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, we're going to get into this as we work through Esau and Edom and is it a place? Is it a person? We're talking about a country? Well, the Hebrew doesn't say country. The Hebrew says Sede Edom. Sede Edom. Sede is a field. The field of Edom. Now, that phrase only occurs, Sede Edom only occurs in one other text in the Bible. You know I love these. By the way, this is the kind of stuff I'll put in our commentary series. Judges chapter 5. Go there with me. Judges chapter 5. We're going to look for the only other reference to the phrase Sedeh Edom. Judges 5.4. Jehovah, when you went forth out of Seir, When you marched out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the waters, the heavens also dropped. Yea, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of Jehovah. Even yon Sinai, the presence of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now, again, this is just a taste. I know some of you want to believe that, uh, that Sinai is in Saudi Arabia, Uh, but I won't laugh out loud. We'll get to that later as we work through the text. But I will say, I'm very opinionated about this, by the way, but I will say that we're talking about a region in the south, Edom, Seir, Jehovah comes from there. Boy, it'd be nice if we could figure out just where is it By the way, you wonder why uh, some of us love to go to Biblical Tamar Park in this region, this wonderful place in the desert, which is just north of what's called Paran. You know that from another text which deals with where Jehovah's coming from. Okay, so he sends messengers, according to this text, to this area here south of the Dead Sea. This region is a place of holiness where one might expect to have a divine encounter or a place we might expect that from this place God would come. But Jacob isn't expecting the arrival of God from Sada'adom, he's expecting, he's anxious. He's expecting his brother to come from that region. In fact, in verse 6, if you go back to Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32 and verse 6, it says, um, and the messengers returned to Jacob. Remember, he sends them out, go find my brother. And they come back and they said, we came to your brother Esau and moreover, He cometh to meet you with 400 men with him. Now, how do you think Jacob feels now? Esau's coming with 400 men. So he's afraid. He divides his family into two camps. Now, today's class is a little bit different in that I'm working through. I'm going to keep working through, digging in, because this is the way you have Some classes, you can work more on a topical. Uh, In this class, it's more conducive to a go through it, dig deep, go through the whole thing. So bear with me, we've got a lot to cover. But he prays, he's concerned, he prays. Look at chapter 32, verse nine. Um, uh, By the way, he puts them in two groups. Why does he do that? Because his idea is that if, God forbid, Esau attacks one group and, and... De- demolishes or kills, destroys, he's got the other group. That's his thought, is that half can get away. So here's what he says in his prayer in verse 9 And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Jehovah, who said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will do thee good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the loving kindness. And of all the truth which thou showed unto your servant, for with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and smite me, the mother with the children. And you said, I will surely do you good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You wanna know how to pray? Read the patriarchal narratives. Put me in remembrance of my words, saith the prophet. These patriarchs, they called upon God, and notice the way Jacob puts it You said to me, Come back. Remember when Jacob left, he told God, Look, if you take care of me and you bring me back safely, then you'll be my God. A lot of boldness in these prayers. I love them. So he sends gifts ahead of him. He wants to appease his brother. He's hopeful that by showering Esau with gifts and letting him know that he comes in peace and bearing much wealth, that Esau will accept him and not kill him. But he prepares for the worst. He gets them across the Yavok, so here's the Yavok. Now this is a difficult part in the, in the uh, geography because we know that he's coming from Padanaram. We know that he's come this way. Notice I'm just generally pointing. It says he puts them on the other side of the Yavok. The question becomes, and, and this could be it, most uh, commentators who study this believe that they would have come down more on an easterly side and would have therefore already crossed the Yavok closer to what is known as the king's highway. But then when he's here, he's got uh, from the south, he's expecting Esau to come. So he puts them safely on the other side of the Yavok. Notice Yavok has a northern uh, side. It splits north-south basically. So the question is, where does he put them? But he's left alone. Look at chapter... 32, verse 24, 32, verse 24. Um, Let me make sure this is the right verse I want to read. Yeah, okay, verse 24, which is 25 in the Hebrew. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was strained as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men. And hast prevailed. And Jacob said to him, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Uh, And the sun rose upon him as he passed over Penuel, and he limped upon his thigh. Therefore, the children of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the hip. Now, a lot to unpack there, but we're going to talk about the struggle that takes place. Now, if you look at your map and on my map, we have this place called Peniel. It's right near the Yavok, by the Wadi Yavok. This is where this encounter takes place. Now, the first thing I want to point out that's missed in some translations is that we have what's something similar to uh, alliteration that's going on in the Hebrew. There are several words which sound alike. They have the same uh, or similar sounds. We have Yaakov at the Yavok who wrestles the Yavok. He wrestles Yavok. Now... Avoke, that's translated wrestle. This is a word, if you look it up and you do a study, you're going to find that there's some academic disagreement going on there. But I want to show you what I think that I've discovered this week. Um, This word is sometimes associated with the root, uh, Aleph, Beit, Kof, which is understood to mean Dust or to kick up dust. Now, if you've ever been in this area, there is dust. We have dust storms, in fact, that blow in. But the the ground is hard, and on the top is dust. And you can imagine two people going at it, and their feet are sliding as they grapple and shove one another. And the dust is coming up. This is the idea of avok, they're they're getting they're getting dirty, as as they the English says they wrestled. Now, evoke can be translated as wrestle. It can be translated as stir up dust, and maybe there's a connection between those two, but some say that it's derived from another root, which I think it is, and that is. A root word that is, the letters are chet, bet, kof. And that means to intertwine or to embrace. They're locked up. Now, very close, very similar. Now, I want you to think about that because it comes back. But also remember that what we're doing is we're looking at these words that sound similar. Yaakov, Yaavok, the va- Yaavok—they're they're wrestling. Now it says in this match, in this this uh, struggle, this whoever he's wrestling with says, "Let me go." Now I think the English says, uh, "Let's see where he tells him." Um, Let me go because the day breaks is what it says here. But literally in the Hebrew, it's the dawn rises. The dawn rises. Now you go, well, the day breaks. I see how they get that. But I I like the idea that you have the dawn is coming up. Look, let me give you an example. By the way, that phrase uh, that's translated... The the dawn rises is used six times in the Bible. I just want to look at one to show you the difference in sunrise and sunset in this this idea. Go with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse uh, 15 in the Hebrew. In the English, it's a big difference. It's chapter 4 verse 21. Nehemiah 421, English 415 in the Hebrews. So he wrought in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning until the stars appeared. You see, the rising of the morning. That's our word here. So this, whoever Jacob is wrestling, says, let me go. The dawn is rising. Now the one that he's, wrestling with says this. Go back to Genesis 32. Genesis 32 and uh, verse 27 in the English, verse 28 in the Hebrew. <clears throat> let me go for the daybreaks. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said unto him, what is your name? A question becomes, is Jacob's opponent unaware of his name? Or is he getting to something here? Jacob replies, my name is Yaakov. And he says in verse 29, uh, after he tells him, I'm sorry, verse 28 in the English, your name shall no more be called Yaakov, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now this ties us back to the Hosea 12 passage. Um, but I want you to look at the next verse. Jacob asked him, because remember, we're still trying to figure out who's he who's he wrestling. Jacob says, Tell me what your name is. And here's what he says. The English says, Wherefore is it that thou ask after my name? Um, and in the Hebrew it says, uh, let me look at this phrase. I'm looking for uh, the Hebrew here. Let's see. The verses are different. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. He says, uh, What is this that you ask for my name? Now that phrase, and this is important, That phrase, just as I read it, occurs in only one other place, and maybe it'll give us an idea of who it is that's speaking. Someone else in the Bible was asked, what's your name? And in that other place, this person used the exact same reply. You ready? Go with me to Judges chapter 13. In Judges Chapter 13, it says, look at verse 18 with me. <clears throat> and the angel of Jehovah, the Malak Yehovah, said to him, What is this you ask after my name? Now, it could be, that this is the typical response of the Malach. If you ask the Malach Jehovah, remember we know the Malach Jehovah. Our first encounter is in the desert where the Malach Jehovah meets with Hagar. Now does the Malach Jehovah have a name? That's the question. Jacob wants to know. Now it's interesting here that in Judges chapter 13 in verse 18, he says, uh, "Lama, lama Why do you ask after my name? And then he says, Vahu pele. And it is Pele. Now, most translations say it's wonderful, like it's too wonderful for me to tell you my name. But I don't think that's the way the Hebrew reads. I think the Malach says, "Um, why do you ask after my name? Uh, Vuhu Pele. It's Pele. His name is Pele. Now that reminds me, and I'm not going to go there, but I just want to say this because it just hit me. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have the birth of this child who is to come. Typically, it's translated... The child's name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Hebrew of Isaiah chapter nine, it says vayikrash Shemo," and he will call his name Pele. And he will call his name Pele Yoyetzel Gibor Aviad Shalom. So, is there a connection? I don't know. It's for another class. But the idea is that here we have. The malak is wrestling with Jacob. I think I've come up with enough evidence here to suggest that Jacob is not wrestling with anyone other than the malak. Now, who is this malach Very interesting because when you look at Hosea chapter 12, you get this poetic description of the fight. He strove with Elohim, he fought with the Moloch, and then it says his name is Jehovah of hosts. Very interesting. So we're going to have to have a whole class. I think Dr. Tabor talked a little bit about that in, in a previous class. Now, in chapter 32 of Genesis, go back there, Genesis 32. Uh, Genesis 32 and verse 30 in the English, 31 in the Hebrew, says he called the name of the place Peniel because I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So this idea, he believes that he's encountered a divine being. Jacob does. Is it a dream? Some commentators say it's a dream. Doesn't sound like a dream. Does it sound like a dream to you? A lot of times in the Hebrew Bible when it's a dream, you know what it says? And there was a dream. This doesn't say it's a dream. So it seems that it's an actual encounter with a divine being. Now, this thing where he says face to face, panim el panim, uh, do a study on that on your own time, but there's a meet, there, that phrase is used five times. It's very interesting. You know, Moses meets panim el panim. Um, Genesis 32, 31 is where we're at, but Exodus 33, 11, Deuteronomy 34, 10 says, Moses knew God, panim El-Panim. But anyway, now look at chapter, uh, let's see, let's go down to, look at verse, just to make one point before we move on. In verse 32, it says, the children of Israel don't eat this part of the the meat. Why is it? Uh, To this day. Now, be on the lookout as we work through this. I'll draw all of these kind of things out in my commentary, but I want you to think where it says, uh, ad hayom, unto this day, that's something that is anachronistic, meaning a contemporary writer is not, the person writing is not like witnessing the wrestling match. It's someone much later who says, oh, and by the way, the story I just told you, To this day, meaning a non-contemporary time, much later, we still don't eat this because of this story, right? It's a clue, it's a flag. Now, chapter 33, Esau's on his way. He divides his family. He's got Leah with her children. He's got Rachel with her children. He's got the handmaids with their children. Now, as Esau heads towards him, Jacob bows to the... Jacob begins to walk forward. He's in front of the girls and the kids. He starts walking towards... You see, now look, they're coming. Dust is flying up. Imagine 400 people are coming towards you. As he's walking, he's bowing to the ground. He does this seven times as Esau approaches. He's saying... I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'm your servant. Now, remember, before he moves out and in the interval of time, there have been people going forward showering Esau with gifts. He still doesn't know. All he sees is dust. Now, behind him, the women and kids are in a certain order. You, you got to, this family is dysfunctional. You, you got to be, you have to think about this. If you're a handmaiden and you got your kids, you're, you're the first to get whacked if this thing goes bad. You know what that does to a family? Hey, you stepkids come up to the front. You, you know, this, is, this, this might get ugly. Come on, come on, Dan. Come on, let's get up here. And then behind the handmaids, Bilha and Zilpah, you have Leah. She's next. If this goes bad, Leah and the kids... They're in trouble. And then Rachel and Joseph. They're the last to go. Now, you know Rachel uh, is Jacob's favorite. So does everybody know that. And you know who else knows it? Leah and all her kids and Zilpah and her kids and Bilhah and her kids. Look, let's just call it like it is. So here's the order that they're going. Now, verse 4 says this. Um, And and it says Esau runs to him and it says he embraces him. Now, remember when I told you that some scholars think that the wrestle is from a root avok, aleph, bet, kof, but I think it's from the root chet, bet, kof. The reason I have to do this is because I want you to see something here. When Esau embraces Jacob, it's that rare root word, chet, bet, kof. Just as the night before, he embraces and intertwines with this malach named Pele. Here, he embraces and intertwines with his brother. Esau falls on his neck, they kiss, they shed tears, and in verses uh, 5 through 7, you'll notice this very touching scene where a procession of the, the women and children come up and they bow before Esau. So you have the handmaids, they bow and Jacob says, this is my handmaid, Bilhan Zilpa, And these are the kids, you know, and Esau's looking at it and he goes, and this is my wife, Leah, and the children, and he introduces them. And Esau, they're still, I want you to imagine this. They're still weeping. This is all going on right here. This is happening right here. And, and this beautiful family reunion, if you will, Esau says, hey, what, what is it? What is it about these gifts that you sent? I have plenty. I don't need your gifts. And Jacob says, listen, if I have found favor in your eyes, please accept it. I just want to take just a moment. I love this phrase that uh, we see in the Bible 36 times. Matzah, hin, matzah, to find favor. You know what I want to do every day of my life is find favor with man and God. If we did this as a race, as a human race, where we looked for opportunities to find favor, look, the world would be a better place. So think about that. I'm not gonna go through all the 36, but do a study. You can look at the English, look for the find favor. In other words, void points of contention where possible. Why would you not try to find favor? Why would you instigate things? That's the world we live in. Enough of that. Now, but the idea is that when, I want you to see this, when Esau embraces him, it reminds us of the fight that happened the night before. And it's not missed by Jacob. Look at verse 10. Jacob says, I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, receive my present at my hand. For as much as I have seen your face, as one sees the face of God and you were pleased with me. Just like he wrestled Chavok with the Malak Yehovah the night before, so he havok, he embraces his brother and he said, You know, the face I saw last night looks just like yours to me. He sees Esau as a divine messenger in a way. And Esau brings a message of peace. He had every right to still be mad as far as right goes. Remember the old saying, sometimes you can be right and not do right. Esau is touched by the family that he meets. And he said, look, I'm going to leave some people with you. We're going to make sure that uh, you get to Seir. Look, you're right here. We're, we're just going right over here. That's a long journey with women and children and flocks. And so Esau wants to help him get there. And they're going to, you know, we're going to all go together. And Jacob says, you go ahead. You go ahead. The pace, this is in chapter uh, 33, verse 12 and 13. He said the pace of the journey needs to be considerate of the, the women, the children, and the flocks. They'll die. I mean, we, we've got to take our time. You, got, you, go on, you run ahead to Seir. Now, the question I have for you is, does Jacob go to Seir? Listen to me. Ever. Just a question. So Esau leaves. Verse 16 says he makes his way to Seir. Now Jacob, it says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 33, look at this, chapter 33, verse 17. And Jacob came in, nope, uh, back up, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. So here he is at Peniel and he goes to Sukkot. Find that on your map. It's just right to the, the west of Penuel on most maps. And by the way, some of these maps have question marks. Is it right here, is it right here? But generally, Sukkot is not very far. He, he leaves Penuel and he goes to Sukkot. <clears throat> Look at this, sound like he's on his way to Seir. Says he built him a house and made booths for his cattle. And therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. So Jacob stays at Sukkot. We don't know how long. It doesn't tell us how long, but he hadn't gone far. He's still east of the Jordan Rift. Now, look at verse 18. And Jacob came in peace to the city of Shechem. Look, if you're looking at the map that I posted, it's point number, what is it? Uh, Two? Did I put a two on the little red? Look over here at Shechem. It's the next red arrow. He goes from Penuel at the river Yavok to Shechem. You see where that is? And it says, it's in the land of Canaan when he came from Padanaram Aram and encamped before the city. And then it goes on to tell us that Jacob, um, um, he bought the parcel of ground. Look at verse 19 where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money and he erected there an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. So here he is, the family is at Shechem, he buys a piece of land from a guy named Hamor and that's where the family's at. Now by the way, this place is, uh, it's going to be important later. Look with me, go with me to Genesis chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. This is going to be something that happens much later. Joshua 24, 32. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem in the parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. So this area here, Joseph, we think Joseph is a young person. I don't think he's a baby, a little kid so much. But remember, they leave Padon Aram when Jacob, uh, when Joseph, after Joseph, his, his birth is mentioned. So, how old is he? I don't know. It doesn't give us enough information to make that determination. But Joseph is going to be here at Shechem. This is his inheritance. And the family lives there a little bit. Go back with me to uh, Genesis 34. And I'm going to work through this story to tell the story pretty quickly. Because I have some more stuff I want to cover. Dinah. Genesis 34, is the daughter of Leah and Jacob. And it says that she goes out to see the daughters of the land. The daughters of the land. And Shechem is the son of Hamor the Hivite. Now, the Hivite is a, a group of Canaanite people. It's mentioned 18 times. By the way, when I do the commentary, you'll have all 18 and you can just simply open it up and, and say, wow, that's, that's pretty cool, Ross. Thank you very much. Uh, Shechem sees Dina. And th- this is me telling you the story as I feel it when I get into the text. He's smitten. Um, he, he thinks that she's beautiful crosses the line evidently. Some, some say rape, some argue it wasn't rape, uh, but it does seem that he uh, for certain forces himself. It says that he uh, took her, he lay with her, and the word is generally translated he humbled her, uh, but it can be given this idea that it's, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not voluntary. It's not necessarily consensual. I don't know. I've said the opposite in the past, but the more I study this deeply, uh, he certainly coerces her, it seems, from the text. And and the thing that we get in the next verse, in verse three, though, is he does love her, but but love doesn't do that, right? So he goes too far, maybe, but it says he loves her and he spoke to her heart. Now, that indicates to me It doesn't say that her heart received it necessarily, but generally that's the idea. When you speak to the heart, uh, translators translators often miss this, but it's in the prophets as well in Isaiah. The idea is to speak tenderly, and it generally implies that the heart receives the message. So I do get the idea, uh, my understanding of the text is that he gets inside her heart, and he asked his father to talk to the family because he wants to take Dina as his woman. And meanwhile, Jacob hears what's happened. Now, I don't know if Dina tells him or if word spreads through the desert and he hears about it in town. I don't know, but he hears about it and he keeps it silent. The boys are away. They're taking care of the flocks. He doesn't let anybody know that he knows he remains silent until they come. Meanwhile, the boys get word. It says that they're grieved and they're angry. So they make their way back. Now, as they're coming back, Chamor addresses, this is verse 8 through 12 of chapter uh, 34, Chamor addresses Jacob and the boys. And he presents a proposal. He says, look, we'll intermarry your group and my group and uh, you can dwell and trade here. You know, it sounds like a proposal to do business and to open up, and the goal is to be one people. And verse 13, look at verse 13, chapter 34. Verse 13 says, And the sons of Jacob answered him and Hamor his father with guile, and spake because he had defiled Dina their sister. Guile, it, he, it, the word is deceit. So he deceitfully, they said, they give the impression that they're gonna work it out. Hey, let's work out this proposal you got there, Chamor and Shechem. We're gonna, uh, uh, we can intermarry, but, but we got a problem. It's, it's, uh, it's not acceptable to us that you boys aren't circumcised. So you need to all go be circumcised. And if you're circumcised, okay, then we can be one people. Uh, All the males have to be uh, circumcised. Or here's the option. If you don't do that, we'll take our daughter and go. Verse 14 through 17. In verse 18, it says that they accept the plan. The, uh, The people of Shechem... Uh, they they accept it. In fact, uh, uh, Shem and Hamor go back to the people in verse nineteen through twenty four. I'm rolling through this pretty quickly to make some points, and they present the plan. Look, we talk to the people. You know, Yaakov and and uh, the families there, and we can intermarry. The men of the town accept it, so they all circumcise themselves according to the narrative. And then in verse 25, look at verse 25. It says, "Um, And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took each man his sword and came upon the city unawares and slew all the males. Now, by the way, the, the Hebrew there is batach. It can mean trust or security. The impression that I get when I read this is they were trusted into the city like the people see them coming, but they don't expect anything because they were just talking to them three days ago, and they said, you know, we can intermarry. So they, they tricked them. They, they used false trust to get in the midst of them, and then they unleash hell on this place. Now, a lot of people, they want to protect and defend the actions. This is righteousness because that bad, bad boy did this to so-and-so. So we're justified in our response. Well, look at their response. Look at their response. Um, they killed Every male. Verse 26, including Shem and Hamor. Kill all of them. Now some people are saying, yeah, but the guy did rape Dina. They killed the whole town. Verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain. Look. The dead bodies are everywhere in the town. Came upon the slain um, and plundered the city because they defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their asses, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and made prey even all that was in the house, they took everything. Now, some people say, "Hey, fair is fair." Well, that's not what Jacob thought. That's not what Jacob thought at all. Jacob was hurt by what they did to his daughter. No doubt, I think he was hurt. Look, I'm a father. I'm a grandfather, and I don't. I haven't always been a biblical preacher. I don't know what I would do. God forbid that something like this happen, because I don't know what I would do. I, I wouldn't want to be the other person because I might just be another Ross. I'm not saying that I would handle it, you know, with kid gloves. I don't know. But I do know this Jacob says the following. Look at verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've troubled me to make me odious to the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I, being few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and smite me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. He's sick over this. They're going to kill us. The inhabitants of the land are going to kill us, boys. They destroyed the whole place and kidnapped all the children and took their women. And you know what the boys said? Should he deal with our sister as a harlot? No, no, I get you, Simeon and Levi, but don't do that, my God. Now, look at Genesis 49, by the way. Genesis 49, verse 5. This is what Jacob says about um, the boys. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Weapons of violence are their swords. O my soul, come not thou into their council, unto their assembly. My glory, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hocked an ox or hamstring. They're just cruel as hell is what he's saying. Simeon and Levi. Cursed be their anger for it was fierce and their wrath for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And by the way, Genesis 49 says, Gather around me, sons, and I'll tell you what will befall you in the Akharit Hayamim, in the latter days. So what happens is exactly what Jacob says, but that's for a later class. So after the massacre, what happens? They're here. They got to get out of town. Now, It just so happens that right after the massacre, God says, Jacob, you need to leave. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. Genesis 35, verse 1. Now, a lot of people don't do this when they study. They don't notice that the departure out of Shechem is right after Jacob says, the inhabitants of the land are going to kill me. And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. And dwell there and make there an altar unto God who appeared unto you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So here they are in Shechem. They started in Padan Aram. They came here, Penuel. They moved to Sukkot. They moved then to Shechem. Now they're headed south. They go to Beit right after the massacre, after the cruel massacre of the inhabitants of the land, they go here to Beit And... Once they get there, um, and by the way, remember, he says, I just read, this is where you were when you met God on your way out of the land. So in Genesis 28, it's, he's at Betel and it even says that he named it Betel because there he had the dream, 20-something years earlier. Now, I don't know how much time... Has elapsed since he left Padanaram to this point. It could be another 10 years. We, it, we just don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. But what we do know is he's about to go to Betel. Now I want to add something here that the text tells us. Before they leave Shechem, Jacob says, You got to get the idols out. Remember, Rachel stole daddy's idols. So they have these, uh, they're called uh, Elohei Hanekar. Elohei Hanekar. They're the uh, foreign gods. He tells them, we got to get rid of the foreign gods. Give me your earrings and the, the foreign gods. And while they're at Shechem, they give up the idols and and the um, uh, the earrings. Some, By the way, some say that these earrings are... On the idols, it's kind of hard to tell in the Hebrew, but nonetheless, the idolatry piece of what they had in their baggage goes in a tree right there. They bury it uh, right there. Now, the cities we read in verse 5 are terrified of this family. Can you imagine? Jacob and the boys are on the move, you know, I mean, the word spreads, and they're terrified. Now, a lot of times people read this and they go, you know, hey, they deserve it. All right. Jacob, it says in verse 6, comes to lose. Look down at chapter 35, verse 6. So Yaakov came to lose, which is in the land of Canaan. Remember this from last week, Bethel? It was formally called Luz until Jacob names it. Notice in our text here, it says he came to uh, Luz the same as Betel. Anachronism, it's a later scribe. Now remember, the Bible will update names because if Jacob names Luz Betel, Then in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8 and chapter 13 verse 3 where it says that Abraham went to Bethel, he did not. No one knew it as Bethel at the time. He went to Luz. So Jacob comes to Luz. There he builds an altar and this is where God had spoke with him or with us. Remember our passage from Hosea chapter 12. Now where it says in verse 7... He built an altar where God revealed himself. Let me look at it. He built there an altar and called the place El Betel because there God was revealed to him. Interestingly enough, that word uh, in Hebrew can be the same word that often is associated with the idea of uh, exile. So God revealed himself, but God also exiled him from there. Just an interesting point. Now, by the way, one thing I don't want to miss, speaking of prophetic glimpses, when they're here at the Yavok, as they come back into the land, it says in chapter 32, verse 3, that they're at a place called Machanaim, and that means the two camps. As a prophetic picture, when Jacob prays, he says, I left this place, with just my staff in my hand. And now I've become two camps. Okay, think prophetically. When Jacob goes out of the land, when he comes back, he's in two camps, Mahanaim. And years ago, I saw this and other people have pointed it out as well. That's what seems to point towards a prophetic picture. Uh, go with me quickly while we're thinking about that. Look at uh, Song of Songs, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 13 in the English, chapter 7, verse 1 in the Hebrew. Now, you know the Song of Songs is sometimes interpreted as an allegory, a love story between God and His people. And in chapter, um, Jose, I'm sorry, Song of Songs six thirteen or 7, 1 in Hebrew, Return, return, O Shulamit. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should we look upon the Shulamit as upon the dance of Mahanaim? The returning one is called for in the four directions of the earth. Return, 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 return. The Shulamit means the restored one. So when the restored one comes back, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like the story of Machanaim, the two camps. Okay. And it's also important in that same understanding to think that Israel needs to put those idols away. So if you're listening to me, you are from Israel, you think you're from Israel, you want to be from Israel, you want to be on God's side, put the idols away, bury them under a tree, Uh, not in your yard, use uh, another place. I wouldn't want it in your yard. All right. But they're going south, so they're leaving Shechem, they're going, they're in Betel now. But on their way, not there yet, on their way, a strange notice is what we get. Rivka's nurse, Deborah dies. Now, by the way, we don't have any mention of Rivka's death. We don't know when Rebecca dies. The Bible doesn't say, doesn't tell us about her death. It does tell us she was buried, so she does die. It's not one of those Enoch or Elijah stories. She dies. We don't know where it happened or whatever, but that's, that's mentioned there. Now look at chapter 35, Genesis 35, and verse 9. <clears throat> and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. Now this is kind of strange he appeared unto him again when he came from Padan Aram. Well, how far back was that? When he came from Padan Aram, he's already been to Yavok. He encountered the angel. He moved to Sukkot. He built a house there. He moved to Shechem, the episode with Dina, the slaughter. He's gone. And that says when he came from Padan Aram. Now, but stick with me. And God said unto him your name Jacob your name shall not be called anymore Jacob but Israel shall be your name and he called his name Israel Well that's interesting it sounds familiar and God said unto him I am El Shaddai be fruitful and multiply a company and a nation a company of nations shall come of you kings shall come out of your loins and the land which I gave unto Abraham and Isaac to give I will give it to you and to your seed after you I'll give the land Uh, And God went up from him in the place where he spoke to him, and Jacob set up a pillar in a place where he spoke with him. Pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering thereon, and poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. Wow. All of that sounds familiar. Sounds similar to the story in chapter 32, where there's an encounter. The name changed. Your name's no longer going to be called Jacob anymore. It's going to be called Israel. But This is another story that tells us a similar story. And you could say, well, it, it's, it's fine. Chronologically, it's fine. It just happened again. Okay. It's also similar to chapter 28 commemorating his departure. He sets up a pillar. He anoints it. He names it Betel. Now, that could be the person recording this is just saying, and that's where God spoke with him. And remember, he called it Bethel. But the stories are very similar, leading some to believe that these are two separate sources on how Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now, the other interesting thing about the name change is that Jacob is still called Jacob after this. He was still called Jacob after the first incident we read in uh, the first naming in Genesis 32, and he will still be sometimes called Jacob, sometimes Israel. But they're on the road again. On the road again, they're leaving Betel. and they're on the way to Beit Lechem. So they're again Shechem to Betel to Beit Lechem. They're headed south. And this is in Genesis 35, verse 16 through 20. Southward towards Ephrat. Now, how many of you know the Hebrew alphabet? This is the Hebrew letter. Hey, this letter is sometimes placed on the end of a place name to indicate direction. It's called in the old Hebrew grammars, the hay directive. I think newer grammars call it something else. But the idea is that if I want to say towards the Negev, I say negba. You hear the ah on the end? Uh, if I want to say towards Ephrat, I say ephrata. If I want to say, Toward, you know, you just put the hay on there. And this particular passage, it says that he's headed towards uh, Ephrat. So he's on the way. Now, Beit Lechem and Ephrat, look on most maps and you'll see the two are close together. Sometimes they're tied together as like a town in the suburb, but it's it's very specific. It's towards Ephrat. It's how the gospel writer thinks that Micah 5 is a place, even though Micah 5 says it's talking about a family. It says, but you Bethlehem, lechem ephratah, you Bethlehem towards ephrat. You see? But then it says you're small among the, the clans of Judah. But anyway, uh, look at Micah 5. The idea is that um, as we look at this, we have to notice that there are certain things that make sense. Let me make one more point because I can't clear my mind of it since I mentioned Micah 5. In Micah 5, by the way, it is interesting that in Micah 5, it does mention Beit Lechem and it's talking about the birth of a child. When she who gives birth will give birth again. And the only person that is mentioned in context with any detail about being born at Beit Lechem Ephrathah is the story that we're about to talk about. And that's Rachel. So Micah five does in a way in my mind, tie together with this story in Genesis chapter 35. And I should add that, uh, Jacob also, uh, mentions the Eder tower of flock Migdal Eder, which is only in Micah four otherwise. So that, the story of Jacob is found in Hosea, as we've talked about, but it's also found in Micah. Now, uh, Genesis 35, verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar on her grave. This is, by the way, I'm, I'm going to come back and catch something. Uh, and he calls this uh, the same as the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. under this day, ad hayom, there's another story about the... That's another anachronism. Rachel dies. They're on the way to Beit Lechem, and Rachel goes into hard labor. And when she's in labor, she names the son Ben Oni. But as her life passes, she dies. The father changes his name to Ben Yamin the son of the right hand. Now, Rachel has the child Benjamin here, according to this text. All the other kids, as far as we know, are born where? Padanaram. Only Benjamin is born here. Now, I want you to put a little note on your paper and say, but is that? all that we have in the Bible, or something like that, because I'm going to tell you one other point. The story continues. I'm I'm wrapping some of this up. It goes from bad to worse. They fled the incident at Shechem. Rachel dies. Now we find that Reuven goes up and has sex with uh, uh, Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, look at chapter 35 and verse 22, the last part. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and Naphtali; the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob that were born to him in Padanaram. Anybody notice anything about that? The list includes Benjamin, but is Benjamin born in Padanaram, or is Benjamin born? in Beit Lechem, on the way to Ephrat. We have to pay attention to these details because they'll come back into our story. Jacob and the family, they bury Rachel, they put her in a grave that's indicated as such, unto this day, which tells us that that part of the story is later, and then they're going towards Hebron, still a southerly direction, right? Notice it says in verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre at Kiryat uh, Arba, the same as Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. Then it says the next verse, the, the days of Isaac were 104 score years and Isaac Uh, died and was gathered unto his people, old and full of days. And Esau and Jacob, his sons, buried him. So when he arrives at Hebron, it seems that he was able to at last see his father. From what we can tell, it's the last time he's, uh, the first time he's seen his father since he fled. More than 20, we don't know how many more than 20, but certainly more than 20 years have passed. His mother's already dead. He sees his father. His father dies. Then Esau and Jacob come together to the burial. Now, the question is, does Esau come from Seir up to Hebron? Because in our story, when we begin, Jacob and the family are here and Esau is here. Let's look at the geography and go a little bit further. Look at chapter 36. By the way, chapter 36 begins a new story within the story. Ela Toledot Esau. These are the bringings forth of Esau. Now look down at verse 6. 36:6. 6. And Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters. And all the souls of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his possessions, which he had gathered in the land of Canaan and went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their inheritance, their substance was too great for them to dwell together. And the land of their sojournings could not bear them because of their cattle. And Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Edom. This would indicate, this particular text, read it carefully on your own as well. We have to decide, was Esau dwelling in Edom and Seir prior, or at what point? Because it seems that the two brothers have grown together. It sounds very similar to the story of Abraham when he and Lot separated. Their cattle and their livestock and their things became so great. Here, in the story of Genesis 36, Esau says he has to go away because there's not enough room for both of them, and he does. And he goes to this area, Seir. Genesis chapter 36 goes at length to cover Esau. It needs a lot more study. We don't have time to do it today. But the editor and the compiler is writing the history later, telling us from uh, source text some things that we miss if we just read the text uh, quickly and we don't pay attention. Geography and Esau's family merge in these texts like this, such that one doesn't know for sure without careful study, if the people names led to the place name or the place name led to the people names. As we work through this, uh, look at, I'll give you an example. I just read one, and Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of Edom in Mount Seir. So are we talking people, places? As I go through, I'm just going to read a couple of points for you to put in your notes or wait for John's notes. Verse 11 mentions Timan. Timan is one of these southern regions where God is coming from. God came from Teman. Uh, chapter uh, 36, verse 12 mentions Temna. I've been to Temna. This area, a lot of copper mines. The Edomites are very strong in this area. Some great scholarly articles on that. Verse 15 mentions Teman, the land of Edom. 17 mentions the land of Edom. This is what I want to go to as I get ready to close. Look at 36, verse 20. This uh, look at this. These are the sons of Seir the Horite. Who is Seir the Horite? The inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shoval, Zibion, and Anna, and Deshan and Ezra and Deshan. these are the chiefs that came of the Horites, the children of Seir in the land of Edom. So we get this idea that there's a group of people called the Horites who are living in this region, Seir and Edom. Now, are they related to Esau? And a lot of people think they are. They're not. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 12. The Horites also dwelt in Seir aforetime, but the children of Esau succeeded them and they destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which Jehovah gave unto them. By the way, there's another anachronism because uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 12 shouldn't know yet that Israel eliminated the people who lived in the land, right? But it says... Yeah, the children of Esau eliminated these people, the Horites, just like Israel did. And you go, ah, thank you. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, as he did for the children of Esau that dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead even unto this day. So what we know is that there's a group of Horites who, uh, who live in this region down here. And Esau, when he splits from Jacob, after Jacob is back in the land and so forth, Esau goes into the land of Edom and Seir and wipes out the Horites. And uh, Genesis fourteen six 6 mentioned this group as well. Now, once you get down to verse 31 of Genesis 36, there's a list of kings. These are the kings that were in Edom before Israel had a king. Again, that's an anachronism. There's no... uh, This was written at a time when Israel did have kings. By the close of this week's portion, Rachel is dead, Isaac is dead, the boys have been reconciled, but then they split up just like Abraham and Lot did. The land was couldn't support both of them. Reuven has slept with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. And that's, by the way, right on the heels of Simeon and Levi doing the massacre at Shechem. So you've got Reuven was the firstborn. He's out. Simeon and Levi are cruel and hateful. They're out in terms of the firstborn. The writer wants us to know this person disqualified, this person disqualified, this person disqualified. Who's next? We need a firstborn. The focus the author wants us to see is that our focus goes to the next rightful firstborn. A boy named Joseph. The firstborn of his beloved Rachel. Now, one verse I want to pick up. First Chronicles 5, verse 1. And the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. All our focus shifts to Joseph. That's what the author wants us to do. Don't look at Reuben. Reuven ruined it. Don't look at Simeon and Levi. They ruined it. Look at Joseph. Look at Genesis 37. You'll see what they want us to see here. Genesis 37 says, And Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Ele toledot Jacob. You know what the next word is? Joseph. These are the generations of Jacob, is the next story within the story. But it's not about Jacob as much as it is about where the scribe wants to bring us next. So next week, we follow our ancient scribe's lead to the new firstborn, the one who now holds that position, to Joseph, Eli, Toldot, Jacob. Don't miss the next class in our series as we begin a new story within a story. Shabbat Shalom. Shavua Tov, and and just keep your eyes open because I intend to announce with a great deal of detail the new project on the Pentateuch that I'll be working on. Shabbat Shalom. Have a great week.